Yeah. The class tonight. I got the air conditioner on here, so maybe it won't be quite as hot as it was uh, last week. So you're right by the air conditioner, I see. <laughs> Sucking up all the cool air there. <laughs> all right, let's. Uh, oh, it's. Well, I got 1216. That, that, I mean, 716, that clock, is, uh, that clock is wrong. That must be Pastor Ken's kind of clock, you see, because it's running slow. That way he can preach longer, you know, it's, that's just the way preachers do. They put the clock slow. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for your goodness and blessing to us this day, for watching over us and providing all that we need in Christ. And we thank you for the great salvation you provided and how that uh, we have great hope for the future as we look forward to the coming of Christ <coughs> and are eventually being with him forever. Thank you, Father, for this time we can study the Gospel of John. Pray you'll open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, um, our memory verse, remember? John 1.1, 1, 1, the easiest one we'll have. <laughs> anybody, anybody volunteer to say it? No, 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 not, not yet. Anybody volunteer? Go ahead. Yes. Let's say it together then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, good, good. Uh, let's see. There it is. And John 1, uh, 1. 11 and 12, that's our next one, and uh, the problem with me is everything I ever memorized was the King James. <laughs> he came into his own, his own received Nazareth, but I, now I got, I got the NIV here, okay, so got to change. He came to that which was his own, and there's a good reason that they changed that, he came to his own. They changed that to, he came to that which is his known because they want you to know that that's not people we're talking about. When you say he came to his own, you think that means his own people or something, but it doesn't mean, and we'll see as we study that verse. So the NIV is trying to get you to think, well, that's not really people. It came to that which was his own, that which creation, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So let's try that, those two verses for next week, and we'll see how we do. All right. Uh, that is slide four. I'm trying to get you used to a new system here. Let's look at our notes here. Uh, let's just review the introduction we had last time. Who wrote the Gospel of John? That's the Apostle John, one of the twelve that Jesus chose. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James's brother. Uh, B, when was the Gospel written? Well, we don't know exactly. We know John died somewhere at the end of the first century, maybe 95 or something, so he had to write before then. <laughs> Most people think around 85 because he seems to have written after the other Gospels, remember, and uh, he doesn't, other reasons, but that's approximate. Where did he write his Gospel? Again, we don't know, he doesn't say, but tradition, the early church writers who talk about John and his writings say he wrote from Ephesus. Remember, Paul established the church at Ephesus. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, spent three years there ministering in, in, in the book of Acts. So, but John apparently came there later on after Paul's death. D, who were John's intended readers? Apparently Gentile Christians, uh, from what we can understand, and through them unbelievers. Remember that the, the, the purpose he writes is so that people can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, John 20. E, what are some of the characteristics of the gospel? We said simple style of vocabulary, but actually pretty profound thinking. A difficult concepts sometimes. Using symbols, a lot of symbolism, born again, you know, a lot vine and the branches. I mean, you think the vine and the branches is easy, but there's actually a lot of debate about the vine and the branches and what's going on there in John 15. Uh, emphasizing the deity of Christ especially. Starts off here in John 1.1 1, 1, and as we'll see he finishes the prologue in verse 18 also emphasizing the deity of Christ. So last week we started looking at John the prologue, the introduction, <clears throat> where he lays out some of the themes he'll be covering. Uh, we notice, first of all, the Word and God in verses 1 and 2. We said the Word is eternal with God. In the beginning was the Word. And we notice that the emphasis there was that the Word, whoever the Word is, now we find out in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. So we know it's Jesus, you know, but we don't know exactly here, you know, until you read through the Gospel. So this Word... In the beginning, the Word was already existing. Remember we said the Word was, speaks of a continuous state. In the beginning, whenever the beginning was, that takes us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. But at that beginning, the Word was already existing. The Word is, however, distinct from God in some way. And the Word was with God. So the Word was with, and remember the article, the, the Word was with the Father. So, though the Word was there, uh, eternal with God, He is somehow distinct from God. And, of course, 
we know from other teachings of Scripture, that distinction is one of personality, person, but not of essence or being. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Word is identical in essence. The Word was God. That is, the Word was deity. The Word was divine. So He is God. It's not easy to understand this doctrine. It's a difficult one, but we just try to go with what Scripture teaches and what the church has taught for 2,000 years. So even though there's a lot of Christian denominations, there's no real debate about that. However, there have some people who call themselves Christians who deny the deity, who deny the trinity, and that is Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, there is some oneness Pentecostals. There have been people who have denied the trinity, but that's, that's a pretty severe doctrine to deny the trinity. That's, that's a pretty universally accepted doctrine. So then he summarizes that in verse 2. He was in the beginning. With, he was with God in the beginning. Now we're ready to look at verse 3, the word and creation. Uh, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I say here verse 3 asserts both positively and negatively that the word was God's agent in creation. First the positive. Through him, that is the word, all things were made. Thus we are to understand that at creation the phrase God said let there be light implies the presence and activity of the word, the divine son. It doesn't mean the father was not involved in creation. And of course we know the Holy Spirit was involved. God was involved. But if you look at, so, uh, uh, if you look at a verse like 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul says, Yet for us there is but one God. So there's monotheism. There's one God. Paul's a Jew. He believes in one God. But this God is the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So right there Paul is telling us something. Now he doesn't tell us there are two persons and one essence, but we, we, we divine this over time and trying to study this doctrine. But he tells us there's one God, but somehow there's a Father and there is a Son. There are the Lord Jesus Christ here. Now, the language here indicates something here. It says, notice it says, the Father from whom and the Lord Jesus Christ through whom. So there's something in the original language that's indicating a slight distinction here. All things are from, and that preposition there is sort of out of. It indicates the ultimate source. So... Uh, the Father is the ultimate source of everything. We have that order in the Trinity. The Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father is the ultimate source. He's, he, he sends. The Son comes. He, he, he dies for us. And the Holy Spirit uh, actually applies this salvation to us. So there's an order or arrangement in the Trinity as the persons work out each thing. So the Father is here from whom, he's the ultimate source, but notice it says it's Jesus through whom. That preposition indicates Jesus, that Jesus, or the Word, the Lord Jesus here, is the intermediate agent. There's the ultimate agent and the intermediate agent. 
Think of it like this. God disciplined me through my parents. God disciplined me through my parents. Well, who disciplined me? Well, my parents disciplined me, right? But God ultimately did it. He's the ultimate agent, and he used my parents to carry that out. So you could say my parents disciplined me. We say God disciplined me. You know, we're talking about ultimate versus intermediate here. That's what we're talking about here. But he says here, every created thing here, all things were made. Through him, all things were made. So every created thing, without him, nothing was made. All things, every created thing passed through the intelligence and will of the Son of God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, that's speaking of angelic beings. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The last part of verse 3 states the fact of the role of the word negatively. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. There are no exceptions. Every created thing came into being through the creative activity of the Lagos. So that clearly tells us that the sun, the Lagos, must be uncreated. Everything that was created was created by him. Every created thing. So he, he couldn't be created because everything that was created was created by him. All creation owes its existence coming through him. So the fact that he's the creator, as we talked about last week, is further proof of his deity. Only God can ultimately create. I should have welcomed those people watching on the live stream. And Larry said that, I guess for some reason, the chat thing is not working. So sorry about the question thing. Uh, we'll try to get that working. Okay, submit a question over the message. Okay, all right, good. All right, let's look at the word and mankind then, verses... 4 through 13. John's, uh, the word was the life and thus the light of all mankind. In him was life, verse 4, and that life was the light of all mankind. So we talked about these symbols, life and light, and I say here they're common symbols in the gospel. They're usually related to salvation in some, some sense. Um, I just got a message from Coles about a big sale, but I'll, ig <laughs> I'll, ignore, I'll ignore that right now. <laughs> I, was, I won't dash out, okay? I'll just, I'll just wait till after class to get that, okay? So, you know, I love you that much that I'm not going to go to that Coles sale right now. So in him was life and light. So these symbols are common, as I say. Usually they're related to salvation in the sense that light is revelation, the revelation of the gospel that comes bring salvation. Life is usually spiritual life, resurrection life, eternal life. The word life is used 34 times in John's gospel, 13 times in 1 John. It always has reference to eternal life and not really physical life. That is, this particular Greek word doesn't mean physical life. Uh, apparently, John means to say that the word is the source of eternal life for all mankind. 
and if we, we can see a kind of a link um, between light and life here in Psalm 36, 9 and John 8, 12. For with you is the fountain of life. Life, you see, in your light we see light. So life and light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. will have the light of life. So these concepts go together, light and life. Light is sort of the revelation of life or spiritual life, eternal life. Um, number two, the word was not received by men generally. Verses 5 through 11. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I say here in John, darkness is used as a category that includes everything that is at enmity with God, that which is earthly and demonic, thus the realm of spiritual evil, the world under Satan's control in spiritual darkness. Apart from the light, Brought by the word, people loved darkness because their deeds were evil. John will say later, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And we understand that. We call that depravity, and that's what Paul tells us. Remember in Romans 3, he says, no person seeks after God. On their own, none of us. We think we do, you know, we think, we're, we think people think they are, but it's God working in them. If God didn't work in them through the Spirit, they would never seek God. They would never uh, seek Christ, seek salvation. And so John says here, but, the, but the, the darkness didn't overcome the light of Christ. So even though all of us are born and depraved, Satan and his minions are out there trying to keep people in darkness, keeping them blinded, yet the light of the gospel is victorious in spite of this opposition. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. I say, though the origins of Jesus Christ are as we have seen to be found in the pre-incarnate incarnate logos. So you know what pre-incarnate, before the incarnation, before he became a human being. Incarnation, remember, refers to Christ taking on himself humanity, taking on humanity, human flesh, human nature, human body, and so forth. Um, so the origins of Jesus are to be found in the Lagos, pre-incarnate Lagos. Yet he came to the public arena when a man who was sent from God, John the Baptist, though he's not called the Baptist here in the fourth gospel, he is in the other gospels, but not here, gave witness to him. John came as a man authorized by God for the giving of testimony regarding Christ. So John is a mere man. We're contrasting, uh, we're contrasting John with Jesus. And in the original language, John, John makes a big contrast in here in verse 6. Remember it says, 
verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Remember I said that word was speaks of continual existence. Well, the word was in verse 6 is an entirely different word. It's the word that means coming, comes into existence. Something comes into it. There came into existence a man sent from God. Same word was in English, but there's quite a difference here that John is bringing out uh, to those who are reading that in Greek and seeing that distinction. He wasn't was like the Lagos was. <laughs> he was was in the sense there was a time when he came into existence. The Lagos always existed, timeless. But John, not timeless. He was a man, a mere man. But he was commissioned by God, as we see here, to bring or to testify to this true light, this true salvation. And he's the agent through whom men were brought to breathe the light, to believe the light. He, he, he's the one who first announced Christ had come on this earth. So yeah, Jesus was born, he was raised um, in Nazareth and so forth, and, uh, but apparently he was not revealed. I mean, his parents knew, obviously, <laughs> who he was. But he, he didn't do any miracles when he grew up. Now, in the early church, if you read later on, there's all kinds of what we call apocryphal gospels. So there are writings in the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Peter. There's all kinds of writings. In order to get a hearing, you know, you tried to claim that you were, your gospel was written by Peter or was written by Paul. But there's all kinds of infancy stories about Jesus. You know, they're not true, but one story is Jesus was in his father's workshop, a, work, a wood workshop, you know, he's, and his father's doing something, and Jesus crafts this little bird. He sculpts this little bird, and then he miraculously turns it alive, and it kind of flies off, you know, like that. Well, no, that's not true. None of that happened. He didn't reveal himself at all. He appeared somewhat normal, probably doing his, as best we know, during his early years. But now, John is given the privilege of announcing that this is the light, this is the Christ. So, uh, here's the Word who is eternal and is the object of belief. Uh, this is John the Baptist. Remember, his mother was a, we're not told about that in this gospel, but his mother was a relative of Mary, Mother Elizabeth, and John is, what, six months older than Jesus, about six months older. So it just says the Greek word there is just relative. It doesn't tell us how near or far it is. And many people think, it's hard to know, many people think it's kind of a far relative because Later on, we'll see Jesus, John will say, when he came to me, I didn't know who he was. It's like I never met the guy. I, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't recognize who he was. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, he just didn't grow up with Jesus? Or maybe he saw Jesus when he was young, but, you know, he didn't see him as an older person, didn't recognize Anyway, he, he just says, I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize this when he came to me. But the reason I recognized him because the Spirit came down upon him, you know, and so forth. That's how he, he knew he was the Messiah. Um, it says, I say here, the purpose of John's witness 
was that through him all might believe. Now, of course, as I say, this was not the actual result since some refused to believe. John was a good witness and he gained the respect of the people. Remember in Matthew, there's a debate about what to do about John the Baptist among the religious leaders. I mean, they'd like to crush him. <laughs> but if we say, if, if he's of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Uh, so, you know, the religious leaders didn't like John telling them they're a bunch of scoundrels, <laughs> obviously. So that, they wanted to crush him, but they were afraid because the people, the common people, looked upon him as a prophet, which he was. Uh, but John here, uh, and some thought he was, uh, was the Messiah, as we'll see in John 1.20. They, you know, they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, no, no, I'm not. And they ask him some other questions. But John, you see, is a very humble guy. He disclaims any ambitions for himself. He was content and how many people can be content, you know, just to bear witness to Jesus, you know, just not to take a first place. Even though he has a very important position here, he, a, he takes a very humble position here in relation to Jesus. He just came so that through his testimony, people could believe in Christ. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Remember verse 8 said, he came, John the Baptist came only as a witness to the true light. And this true light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The words give light mean to shed light upon, to make visible or to bring to light. John is speaking of the light of revelation that has come into the world through the coming of Christ. Um, now, as the remainder of the gospel will explain, as we all know, not all people will receive the light though it was available to all these people through the presence and teaching of Jesus, and it's still available through the teaching of Jesus recorded in the scripture. So the light, in a sense, shines on everybody. It's available to everyone through the gospel, whether they see it or not. And they don't, because they're in darkness. And as the man says in John 9, I was blind, but now I see. That's sort of... Uh, a metaphor for all of us. We were blind, uh, but now we see. Um, it just reminded me that I was going to bring my notes tonight and share that with you, but I'll bring it with you. So the first sermon I ever preached <laughs> was on John 9, you know, Maybe I should save it till John 9. Maybe I will, but it's a doozy. <laughs> but I, say, you know, I saved it. I still got the paper it's on and everything, and it's, it's typed on a typewriter. And it's, remember the typewriters? A lot of people don't even know what a typewriter here is. But, but we had ribbons on it, but some ribbons had black and red. You remember that black and red? Well, some of this... Some of, the, I've, I, some, of the, some, of the, some of the important things are in red on this paper, so I'll have to, you know, maybe I should send that to the Smithsonian or something. I don't know. I'll, 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 uh, I'll have to show you that. You'll love that sermon. Yeah. And, I, and I had this great point, but it was unfortunately false. But I'll, I'll, I'll explain why it was false a little later on. Verse 10. He was in the world, 
And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So that's the first part of our memory verse. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. John now gives us the unhappy news that in spite of the witness of John the Baptist, the entrance of the light into the world by the incarnation was generally unrecognized by mankind. The Word had created the world, but still it failed to recognize and acknowledge its creator. The world here is that Greek word you've heard often, cosmos. The world system of mankind. The world system lost in sin, unresponsive to the light whom God sent. The spiritual blindness of men is brought into even sharper focus by the statement, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. As I said, that first own is in the original language, in a lot of languages, not just Greek, but other languages too, Frank. Uh, nouns have gender. That is, they have, the way they're spelled, they have different spellings uh, that indicate whether they're masculine or feminine or what we call neuter. Some, some, some languages have masculine and feminine, some have masculine and feminine and neuter. And that really has nothing to do with whether they are masculine, feminine, or neuter. A lot of times, it's kind of a strange thing. So it's one of the first things you have to teach Greek students is the difference between natural gender and grammatical gender. So all words in Greek, all nouns, are either masculine, feminine, or neuter. Now most of the time, that corresponds. The word anthropos, man, is masculine. And uh, gune, that's woman, that's feminine noun. So it, it, it makes sense. But not always. The word for children is neuter. <laughs> I don't know if that tells anything about children or not. But, but, you know, the word for children is a neuter. But it doesn't mean they're neuter. It's just, just, the, way gra just the way the grammar works. But sometimes it does tell us something. And here it probably does because he uses the same word. He came to his own and his own, same word, but one is neuter, one is masculine. So he's trying to draw a distinction here. He came to that which was his own. That is, his own things, his own belongings, his own creation. He came to his own world. He had, Remember, he's already created this thing, as we're told in the first part of the gospel. Here's the creator, comes on the scene. Here he is, the creator, and notice, and his own did not... <laughs> his own didn't receive him he was in the world and through the world was made through him the world did not recognize him amazingly here's the creator and because of their spiritual blindness they don't recognize him they don't see him they're blind and he comes to his own creation and his own people did not receive him we're talking about the Jewish people here and his homeland you know in Israel and so forth so here's Israel, the nation that God chose to be the recipients of His revelation in the Scriptures. They, of all people, should have welcomed Jesus. They should have, you know, here's their Messiah. Here He is. And they should have welcomed Him. But spiritual blindness, again, on their part, they not only didn't welcome Him, they crucified Him. They put Him to death with the help of the Romans, but ultimately they instigated it against Him. They, they hated Him. At least a lot, of, a lot of people did. 
So it's an amazing fact. He came to that which was his own. Here's the creator, but yet his own people, Israel, did not recognize him, didn't receive him, rejected him, crucified him. Well, the word was received by some, verses 12 and 13, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So it's been said that verse 11 would be an appropriate title for chapters 1 through 12 of this gospel. Yet to all who did receive him, uh, yet to all who did receive him, I'm sorry, verse, verse 11, he came to that which his own, but his own didn't receive him. So that's sort of like verses 1 through 11. Jesus' ministry and the ultimate rejection, you know. And then verses uh, thir 13 through 21, to those who did receive him, verse 12, uh, he gave the right. Talking about the disciples he chose, you know, the upper room and all that. Some people make that connection. In truth, national Israel, for the most part, rejected the word when he came into the world. There were, however, a few who received him, which is explained as those who believed in his name. So, he gave to them the right the authority to become the children of God. So, we have to receive Jesus, but remember that really is talking about belief. So what, is, what does it mean to receive Jesus? Uh, we, need, we need to be a little careful here, you know. Uh, how do you get saved? <laughs> Well, you get saved by receiving Jesus, but what does that mean? It means believing. It's faith, justification by faith, right? You've got to have faith. You've got to believe in, the, in who Jesus is and what he did. You've got to believe he died on the cross for your sins. Um, so John explains that because he said, those who received him, that is, I mean by that, those who believed in his name, he gave the right. So to receive him means to, you know, entrust oneself to Christ, to acknowledge his claims, to uh, confess him. It's, it's not just merely an intellectual kind of thing. Uh, the reformers uh, talked a lot about, they were trying to explain faith and this is a good way to understand what's involved in saving faith. It really has three elements. It has knowledge. You've got to know who Christ is. You've got to know what he did. But you can know that and go to hell. You can read the Bible, read the Bible through, you know, once a year and never get saved. You can have knowledge. You can know that. So it's more that. You can say it's true and that's a little confusing because you'd say, okay, I, I, know, I, I read what the Bible says about Jesus and I believe it's true. But there is really a third step and that's trusting or committing yourself to that. It's, it's a little more involved. So to believe in him, biblical belief is trust. It involves a commitment. You're saying, yes, I'm placing my destiny in the hands of Jesus. I'm trusting him. For eternal life. I'm not trusting anything else, my works or anything. I'm just confessing 
and accepting and trusting Him. So I say here to believe in someone's name means to believe in the person including what he stands for and represents. Remember John 15, 21 will say, They will treat you this way because of my name, for they know not the one who sent me. Now, when he says they will treat you because of my name, he doesn't mean they're going to treat you away because they don't like the name Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. You may not know this, but there were a lot of people in Jesus' time named Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua is a very popular name in Hebrew, as you can imagine, because of the great Joshua in the Old Testament. So a lot of people would have, and we have a few of them mentioned in the New Testament, actually. So it's not because they hate J-E-S-U-S. -S, it's because what does J-E-S-U-S -S stand for? So the name is what, what something stands for and what something represents. We say, that person has a good name. We don't mean that B-I-L-L -L is a good name. They mean... They mean uh, it's better than some names, but, you know, <laughs> I won't go there, but <laughs> we have some friends and they have a grandchild and he has the weirdest name in the world, but I'm not going to say it here, <laughs> but I'll tell you in private, but, you know, why people name their children these strange names, the poor child is going to be, you know, embarrassed all the way through school and all that, you know, so if, Remember, if you're having children, give them a nice, simple name, you know, that no one will make fun of them in school. So, 1726, I have made you known. New American Standard says, I have made your name known. To make your name known means to make you known. I say here, however, the word believe does not always denote saving faith. So remember that in the gospel. Remember that throughout anywhere in the Bible. Sometimes it says... Simon the sorcerer believed. And some people think, well, if it says they believe, man, they believed. Yeah, but it might just be that knowledge part. It might not be the assenting. It might not be the trusting part, you know. So just because it says believe, it doesn't always mean that you have saving faith. We will see later in John 2... Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many, believed, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. See, they believed because of the signs. They, they saw these signs, but as we'll see when we get into the Gospels, a lot of them walk away. You know, They like the fact that he feeds them, but when the food's gone, they're gone. That kind of thing. And unfortunately, we see that in churches too, right? We have people who will come into church, they're excited and all that, but a, a little difficulty comes, a little hardship comes, a little controversy comes, they're gone. I'm going somewhere else, you know, like that kind of thing. And you, you have to wonder, you know, about what really happened. Did they really trust Christ or that kind of thing? John 8, 30, 31, even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. So Jesus is recognizing there, okay, these all people professed faith, but Jesus is recognizing, you know, 
they're not really all believers. The way you really tell if faith is genuine, if it continues, if it goes on, if it endures, if it perseveres over time. That's how you really know if it's really genuine. Um, so, as I say here, context has to decide whether we're talking about genuine belief or just sort of an intellectual assenting. Uh, we need to trust him. That's what receive him means. As many as received him, he gave the authority to become the children of God. I'll say here, all believers have become children of God on the authority of Christ. They're sharers of his life on the highest spiritual plane. And Jesus explains who these children are. They're children, I mean, John does, children born not of natural descent, verse 13, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So the children of God in verse 12 are now described as children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So these terms, natural descent, human decision, a husband's will, the husband was usually seen as being the, uh, being the uh, one who, who, who uh, planned procreation or instituted procreation. So that's why it says the husband's will here. Um, so human decision means what's human as opposed to what's supernatural. Uh, and so this is not a natural birth. These are children who are born supernaturally, as John will explain to Nicodemus in John 3 when we get there. The series of three negatives, not of natural sense, human decision, and women's will, make the general point of 3.6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Remember, he says that to Nicodemus. The new birth is not the product of the natural birth, but direct intervention of God. Now we come to the Word and the Old Testament system. Now John boldly announces the incarnation, the enfleshment. Incarnation is from a Latin term. means to put something in flesh, enfleshment, to become a human being. The enfleshment, he, the word, the logos, now this eternal logos, the son, the second. So we, we can use the word son to describe the second person of the Trinity before he became a human being. Or we can use the word logos, those are good terms, the son or the logos to describe the second person before he became a human being. Now he has become a human being and he will forever be a human being. Jesus will forever be a human being. Now he's a glorified human being, but he'll always be the God-man. There's no indication that that ever ceases. He'll always be human and divine. But he wasn't until this enfleshment, this incarnation. Before the incarnation, the Old Testament revealed God's way of dealing with men. The Jewish nation had been brought into the, a covenant relationship with God and the Mosaic law provided the framework wherein men could live lives pleasing to God. So God created the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt. He gave them a constitution, the Mosaic legal system, Mosaic law, and the nation begins. So John's prologue is now going to, in these last 
verses explicitly identify Jesus with the Word, which we've been talking about all along, and show how the Word coming into the world fits into this operation. How does He fit into the plan of God? Verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That is, He became a human being. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Lagos took upon himself humanity. He didn't cease to be God. There's no intermingling of the natures. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man. Fully God, fully man. No intermingling of the natures, but two natures. Rather, he added humanity what he already was. So flesh is used here in the sense of human nature. And, and this becomes the supreme revelation. So God revealed himself throughout the Old Testament in various ways. <clears throat> there were theophanies. You heard that term, theophany? Theophany is, theos is God, and phanos is manifestation. So theologians talk about theophanies are manifestations of God. Sometimes God manifests himself visibly. God is spirit. The Father's spirit. You can't see the Father, he's spirit. <laughs> can't see the Holy Spirit, he's spirit. So, but sometimes God manifests himself so people can see something of God. And he did that in the Old Testament, they call that theophanies. Now, Jesus is a theophany, but he's, he's what we call a Christ. He, he's, a, he's really the supreme manifestation. So in the Old Testament, sometimes God manifests himself, you know, as the burning bush. Sometimes the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the cloud that followed Israel and so forth. Uh, so sometimes God would manifest himself in different ways. Um, sometimes he would take on human form. Remember with Abraham there. The Lord actually was there. That's called a, we always, we, we call that a Christophany because it's a pre-incarnate, before his incarnation, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. So the Son sometimes takes upon temporarily human form in the Old Testament like he did with Abraham when he had the three Sodom, you remember, he's going to destroy Sodom and the three, three angels come to, three people come to him. One of them actually is Christ manifesting himself as a human being there. And so that's a Christophany. So God did, did reveal himself in the Old Testament, but now we have the supreme revelation. Notice Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In time past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, He's spoken to us by the Son. The Son is the supreme revelation and the final revelation, really, of God. Complete and final revelation. Um, and we're told here that uh, um, God... The Word became flesh and made His dwelling. 
attention is always drawn to that word dwelling because it always speaks of, it's the word that's used for putting a tent up, making a tent. It, it's, so it, it has this sort of temporary sense because, you know, he was only here for 30 years or so and then he went back to his father. So this was sort of, he pitched his tent. He made a temporary dwelling here. So it's used in the sense of, of a temporary earthly presence among us. Now to the Jewish mind, when, the, when you see that word that's used here, I'm sure it would call to, to mind the tabernacle, the tent where God manifests himself. You remember in the, in the tabernacle, uh, God, and in the temple later on, God would manifest himself there, remember, in the temple. The Jews have a term for that. They call that the Shekinah. You've probably heard of the Shekinah glory. You ever heard of that Shekinah glory? People talk about, you don't hear it much these days, but you used to always hear about the Shekinah glory. Well, Shekinah is not a word that's in the Bible. It's a Hebrew term that Jews use to describe the manifestation of God in the tabernacle it Shekinah means the dwelling or the presence of God. So they talk about the dwelling glory. God decided to, even though he's omniscient, <laughs> I mean, he's omnipresent, I'm sorry. Even though God's omnipresent, he's everywhere, yet he can, on, on occasion, manifest himself in certain places at certain times, as he did in the temple and in the tabernacle and so forth. And so, same way with Jesus, uh, uh, we used to ask students at the seminary when Pastor Ken was graduating at the time, that, those years, we had this doctrinal exam at the end of the, end, end of the before you graduated. It's always something the students dread. It, it was bad because it had all these tricky questions that we always ask, you know. It's tough questions, you know. And one of them was, Dr. McKeown would say, is Jesus here in this room? Is Jesus here in this room, you know? And you just don't know what to say to that, you know? What is, is Jesus here in this room, you know? Is he here in this room? Well, yes and no. <laughs> the Lagos is here. The Son is here because he's omnipresent. So God the Son is omnipresent. So he's here in this room but not the human, not the human part. The human part is in a fixed location. The human part can only be in one part place at one time. He's temporally bound. So, you know, he's not here. That temporal part is not here. That human part is not here. So when you say Jesus, it depends on what you mean by that. So, you know, no matter what the student says, he's in trouble. It's one of these questions that <laughs> you're just in trouble no matter what you say, you know. You just, you just, you just in trouble. So uh, we're talking about the fact that the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling there on Earth temporarily for those thirty years. I say here, John now describes his own experience as an eyewitness of these things. What he saw as he was with Christ was the glory of God, the Father, displayed through the person words and deeds of Jesus. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as I say in the Old Testament, the word glory could denote the visible manifestation of God in a theophany. Theophany. Uh, 
in, uh, in Exodus 33:22, it says, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Remember Moses wants to see God. And he says, well, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you'll kind of see, you won't really see me because you can't see me, but you'll see a manifestation. I'll show you something. In the, when, you know, you'll, you'll just see the glory of God pass by. You can, see the, you can see the cloud, the pillar of fire. You can see those are manifestations of God. The word is described as the one and only, which is a Greek word uh, that has the sense of uniqueness, monogenes, that has the sense of uniqueness, only one of a kind. So he is the one and only. He is the unique son. There's only one son. There's only one like him the Son of God, who came from the Father. Uh, full of grace and truth. That describes the word as the revealer of the Father. Grace brings to mind God's mercy and favor toward men, and truth depicts His fidelity to His promises. Now John 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now notice the parentheses there in the NIV. As I say, verse 15 is something of a parenthetical thought between verse 14 and 16. In other words, you could read verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the, the one and only the Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you could go right to verse 16. Out of his fullness we have received grace and place and so forth. So this is a little parenthetical thought. Apparently John reversed to the witness of John the Baptist to explain further the Baptist's position as to Christ. How does, he's going to give us a little more information. How does John the Baptist relate to Christ? I say the word was connected to the Old Testament system in the sense that he was directly witnessed to by John the Baptist. After 400 years without direct revelation, the Spirit of God came upon John so that he might draw the attention of the Jewish nation to their Messiah. John the Baptist himself was the last of the Old Testament prophetic line. Matthew eleven thirteen, For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John. So everything... You lose my audio there. <laughs> just for a second. Yeah. Okay. I okay. Sorry. Right. Um. So it means that uh, you know he is. Um, he comes after me in the sense he was born later than me, six months later. He started his ministry after me. John came first. 
but he surpassed me because he was before me. And the reason is, the reason he surpassed me, he says, he surpassed me. Why is that? Because he was before me. That is, he existed before me. He existed before I did. Um, I'm the last Old Testament prophet, and then here comes Jesus. He is before me. He, is, he existed, as we just saw, as John has explained. So John's the, old, the last Old Testament prophet, and that's important to remember. There are people in the New Testament who have the gift of prophecy. There is a gift of prophecy mentioned, you know, in the 1 Corinthians and so forth. A miraculous gift that's not available today, but there were no Old Te New Testament prophets in the sense of an office of prophet, you know, like Malachi. Who had the office of prophet was to the nation of Israel and so forth, and like John was. Verse 16, uh, out of his fullness we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I say these are the words of the author and not John the Baptist. The Mosaic law which stands here for the entire Old Testament economy is contrasted with the new revelation in Christ. From Christ's fullness, we've all received grace in the place of. The grace that, and truth that came through Jesus Christ is what replaces the law. The law itself is understood to be an earlier display of grace. We've all received grace in the place of grace already given. That's the Old Testament law that was given through Moses. That had grace. That was a gracious gift of, 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 the, of God. The grace and truth that came through Jesus replaces the law. The law itself is an earlier display of grace. Remember Exodus, like, places like Exodus 34. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. So God was gracious to Israel in the Old Testament. People could be saved in the Old Testament by the grace of God. So there was grace there. But now we have greater grace through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace in the place of grace already given, grace and truth. I say the four in verse 17 means because, because as the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the covenant of the law was a gracious gift, but replaced by this even greater gracious gift, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who, himself, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So the prologue reaches its grand conclusion with, a pro conclusion with a proclamation that Christ, the Word, is the fullest revelation of the Father. No mere man has ever seen God's essence. The first clause, no man has ever seen God, probably reflecting the Old Testament situation. Even the various theophanies were only diminished manifestations of God. In Christ, of course, we have the highest revelation of God so that Christ could say himself, you remember, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, from the rest of the Bible, that doesn't mean I'm the, I'm the Father. <laughs> and that can, can be confusing. But if you've seen me, it's like you've seen the Father. You've seen God. So if you've seen me, it's like you've seen the Father. You've seen 
the manifestation of God. So this is a striking assertion of the deity of Christ. The one and only Son who is himself God. Say, John 1.1, John 1.18, both asserting the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay. I see it's 8.15, so I better let you go. <laughs> All right.